Hello and welcome. This is Ricky Schoonover of Mode Denver Real Estate, and you have found Denver's monthly real estate podcast, The Denver Homes Market Report. In our last episode, we talked about how the market was shifting and slowing down. The feds are raising their benchmark rates, and although they are only one piece of a very large and uber complex mortgage calculation to arrive at what your rate will be on your mortgage loan, no doubt. As the feds raise their benchmark rates, those hikes find their way into many different avenues when it comes to borrowing other people's money. Short-term loans, auto loans, credit cards, and yes, home loans, all tend to also get more expensive and even more importantly, harder to obtain. So this month, I wanted to play off of my points from the last episode. And lo and behold, the universe brought me my topic without me even having to think about it. So here goes. Well, 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 times have changed and they have changed quickly. I mean, three months quickly. I'm bringing you the real world up to date real estate news today. I mean, I have my ears on the tracks here. I'm currently working on a deal. Actually, we just closed, but I did not want to fully publish this podcast until my deal was closed. Call me superstitious. However, I represented the buyers, and in this case, this is in a neighborhood that is very well established. The prices in this neighborhood always command a premium. When other up-and-coming neighborhoods or quote-unquote transitional neighborhoods, you know, take a brunt of a market shift, you know, okay, one second, let me stop there. Why do up-and-coming neighborhoods seem to fall harder and faster when we start to see the real estate market cycle down after a decade or so of the market only marching north year over year. So why is that? Why when a neighborhood that is quote unquote up and coming or transitional, why as soon as the market takes a tiny, and I mean a tiny turn south, these neighborhoods bear the brunt of it and the prices fall by double digits while established neighborhoods like let's say Applewood barely and I mean barely even see a dip. So here's my take on that. There are likely multiple reasons and we could get into launching a debate over all the reasons why but for the purposes of today's podcast I'm going to point to the most simplistic answer. We and when I say we I really mean myself included in that you know we buy homes in these transitional neighborhoods with much speculation and optimism that they will continue to be on this path of better infrastructure, more corporate investments, which then bring larger and more modern retail opportunities, which then brings up the values in these neighborhoods for everyone. We're talking about parks, newer schools, upgraded firehouses, grocery stores, coffee shops, wine bars, tap rooms, breweries, restaurants, things of that nature. We buy now with the optimism that in a few years, the area will be more desirable to a larger pool of potential buyers. However, when the market shifts just a little, the first thing that gets pulled back on is this hope for future development. So as the market shifts and development plans then start to get pulled back, many buyers are then no longer in the buyer pool for these particular areas and the prices fall faster and harder than other more established areas. 
you know, whereas in an established neighborhood, doesn't have as many buyers who are coming in with the hopes of it getting better. You know, buyers purchase in these homes and they are already willing to pay a premium because they tend to already have better schools, better parks, recreation and retail. It's already all there. Of course, everyone hopes their neighborhood would continue to improve or at least you know, maintain. The homes command higher prices because they are already there in terms of quality, lifestyle, you know, that these discerning buyers want and they can afford. So I had this unique opportunity to speak directly with the sellers on this deal. Even though I was not representing them, they are not my clients, it was just small talk. We were there, I was waiting out front for some contractors to arrive who were coming to look at the house before we actually closed the deal, just to provide my clients with an estimate for some updates. However, I found out that they had had an appraisal, these sellers, they had had an appraisal done on this beautiful home just about three or four months ago for another uh, deal that they were working on. And the appraisal was well over $1 million for this particular home that my clients are now trying to buy. In fact, there was a home right up the street that sold for over $1.1 million just a short time ago. And of course, in these sellers' minds, that home that just sold for 1.1 wasn't even as nice as their home. Now, that's kind of the norm, right? The neighbor's home is never as nice as the seller's. It's just kind of how that mentality goes. Now we fast forward two more weeks. The deal's been closed. My clients are in love with their new home and they wasted no time jumping in and getting to work with some much needed updates, such as replacing some old carpet with some beautiful solid red oak floors. They also uh, found through the inspection process that since this home was built in the 1960s, it had some popcorn ceilings that had contained uh, asbestos. So they worked with a specialized team to have the asbestos popcorn ceiling removed. One note on asbestos. Let's just take a break here for a second. One note on asbestos. If your home has it, and I mean, if your home was built in the 60s or the 70s, you can pretty much count on the fact that there is asbestos somewhere whether that's in the popcorn ceilings, the floor tiles, the insulation, I mean, etc. They used this product because it was cheap and it provided sound attenuation and it helped hide some of the flaws in the drywall, particularly on the ceilings, meaning they could save some labor. They don't have to go and make the ceilings look perfect. They could just spray this popcorn stuff on the ceiling and it was done. They didn't even need to paint. Oh, another fun fact. I just learned this while I was preparing for today's episode. The snow, quote unquote, in the movie set of The uh, Wizard of Oz. All that snow that you see on the TV blowing all over the place, falling down on all the characters and being blown all over the set. It wasn't until, that was all asbestos, but it wasn't until years later that we discovered how damaging it was for your lungs. And then another note, I was in the Navy. I served on the Rodney M. Davis, and I also served on the USS Ingraham. These were the two oldest frigates in the fleet. They'd been around since the 60s. Um, and I'm sure they were floating asbestos pools, even when I served in the mid-1990s. So what they really say in today's messaging is, first of all, yes, it's damaging, and you need to protect yourself, particularly if you're disturbing it, meaning breaking it up the materials and removing it from your home. You know, you do not have to remove it. If it's already in place and it's not disturbed, it's not likely to cause you or your family any issues. 
the vast majority of people who were caused harm either worked around it as industry workers, either they were in manufacturing of the materials, or they worked in the fields where they were installing these products containing asbestos, or were removing such products early on where we didn't know how damaging it could be and not taking the precautions that we all know to take these days. Now we have companies who specialize in isolating the area. You know, if, if you have or suspect you have products in your uh, home, like ceiling tiles or popcorn, whatever, as long as you're not disturbing it, like breaking it up into pieces, trying to remove it, the risk is pretty minimal. If it doesn't bother you, just leave it alone. If you have floor tiles and you want to change the look, leave the floor tiles in place and just lay some sort of a thin layered floor right over it. This way you're not breaking it up, sending those fibers up into the air where they can then end up in someone's lungs. Is there still a risk? Sure, there is, but it's greatly minimized if you are not disturbing the product. This is the advice I've been given by numerous home inspectors and the advice that I pass on to my clients. Okay, I kind of got off on a tangent regarding the asbestos, but there are so many misconceptions out there and I just wanted to share that important information with you while we were on the topic. Now, bottom line, if you have a home that was built in the 1960s or the 1970s, somewhere in between there, it probably has products in it as part of the construction that contain asbestos. Don't disturb it and you are likely not going to have to worry about it. But again, if it keeps you up at night, hire a professional to remove it. It's expensive, but honestly, it's only about two bucks a square foot. So let's say you have a 2,000 square foot home. It's valued at somewhere around $500,000, and it costs $4,000 to remove. That's less than 1% of your home's value. So just keep that in perspective. Okay, let's get back to my deal here, where uh, the sellers had had an appraisal done a few months before my clients came along and offered on the house. The appraisal they had done a few months back valued the home at well over a million dollars. You know, they even had that comp that I was talking about, one of the neighbors who had sold recently for 1.1 million. The house was on the market, their house was on the market for almost two months and nobody had bought it. And even after a, a few price reductions, finally, my buyer saw this home and offered, even offered them over what their current uh, list price was. Which by the time we wrote our offer, the asking price was right around 890,000. And my buyers offered 895,000, just knowing that the home was old and there were likely going to be some repair issues that would come up. And they wanted to give these sellers kind of a feel good offer, just in case when the inspection came back, it showed some sort of serious defects and that they were um, likely to you know, ask the sellers to either fix it or maybe compensate them for. Well, not only did we have the asbestos, which arguably the sellers could have just said, hey, you know what, this asbestos has been in here since the 1960s, we've been in this home for 30 years, and you know that was from when the home was built, and it hasn't caused any issues. And that's a fair point. But also, all the major systems, like the boiler, the water heater, the air compressor for the AC system, all of these systems, all the major systems were well beyond their life expectancy and would likely need to be replaced um, you know, in a very short period of time. So the home also had none of the modern GFCI outlets like the electrical outlets. So that was another expense that my buyers were sort of calculating into their budget. So we proposed a $15,000 credit and the sellers then counter proposed and said, hey, why don't we just reduce the price by 15,000? And so we all agreed to lower the final 
sales price to 880,000. Well, the seller was feeling like they sort of got the short end of the stick on this deal. And although my job in this particular deal was to advocate for my buyers, which is what I fiercely, whether I'm working with my buyers or and representing them in the purchase, or I'm on the other side of the deal and I'm advocating for my sellers to help ensure they get the best outcome possible in the sale of their homes. However, I understand the seller's frustration in this case. I mean, the market turned on a dime. I mean, a few months ago, we had lines of people waiting for the open house to start. Heck, we had offers coming in $100,000 over the asking price, even before the listing was fully active in the MLS. However, they originally listed at just shy of $980,000. They spent two months on the market, they had two price reductions down to that 890,000 mark and my buyers finally jumped in with their offer and landed at $880,000. The seller should be really happy. I mean, that is only a small percentage, less than the 980 that they started out with when the market was much stronger and moving slower. I mean, $100,000, I get it. 100 grand is 100 grand. But in the scheme of things, it's just over 10% less of what they were originally asking for two months ago when the market was stronger. They got nearly 90% of what they originally asked for and in this market where it's been rapidly shifting away from this. So this brings me to my next point here. When you look at homes, and I have helped clients buy and sell over the past 24 months, you know, I have helped 11 buyers and I have helped nine sellers. Then I have two homes I'm selling right now. One is in contract and the appraisal is today. And the other uh, is currently active. We've just reduced the price and I'm um, having an open house this weekend. And I'm, con I'm confident both of these homes are going to sell. If these two deals close, I will be exactly 50% of my business representing buyers and exactly 50% of my business representing sellers in the last 24 months. Why is this so important? Well, whether you are selling your home or you're buying a home, your first thought may be, well, I want to hire that agent who primarily represents sellers to sell my home. Or on the other side, you want to buy a home. So you think I should hire a realtor that mainly helps buyers. And you know what? The answer to that, to both of those are no. Why not look for a well-rounded realtor? One who knows what the current pool of buyers are willing to negotiate and looking for, and also one who is equally versed in the sellers and the current pool of sellers and what they are able to negotiate into their deal from buyers. When you hire me, you know I have current experience with both what sellers are looking for or what they are able to get from other buyers, you know, or as the buyer. I'll know we can likely ask for and get because I'm seeing firsthand what sellers are willing to give up in the current negotiations. If you work with a broker who only represents sellers or mainly buyers, they may not be as well versed in what both sides of the table are able to negotiate for their offers. Just something to keep in mind. It may be to your benefit to hire a realtor who is up to speed on what the current pool of buyers are looking for as well as what the current climate is for the sellers. Okay, 
Well, that's going to wrap up today's podcast. You have been listening to the Denver Homes Market Report. This is Ricky Schoonover of Mode Denver Real Estate. I really appreciate you listening. Please, wherever you get this podcast, and I mean, we are pretty much everywhere that they are delivered, please subscribe. This helps me out a lot. Also, if you or someone you know are looking to buy or sell their home, give me a call. My number here is 720-688-5110. Or you can visit my website, which is denverhomesmarket.com. Okay, until next month, have a safe and happy Halloween, and we'll catch up there in November.